Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. text says this, Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and seas obey him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we um, come today with expectant hearts looking to hear from you through your word. It is a sacred moment as we consider that we have an inspired text in front of us, and it is a sobering moment to think that it's my privilege to try and give the sense of this text. So we need you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher. We need you to take this text and illuminate in our eyes, in our minds. I pray today that you would... Lord, shore up weak, need disciples. I pray that you would give us a new level of trust in you. I pray that you would open the eyes of some today who claim to know you but don't, who would profess themselves to be your followers but really aren't. And I pray that today might be a day of conversion. Today might be a day of salvation. Today might be a day of recommitment. So Lord, use Matthew 8 to strengthen our souls and use it to exalt your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 8 ushers us into a new section of Scripture in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. Since the beginning of the year, we have been moving through this glorious gospel, discovering in the first four chapters that Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, this one who's been sent to bring the kingdom of God to the world. And then in chapters 5 to 7, he introduced us to his teaching in the great Sermon on the Mount. So the first seven chapters were essentially designed in Matthew's scheme to present Jesus and then to lay out his teaching. Chapters 8 to 10 are a little different. They are more about who Jesus is and what he does. They're more about what it means to follow him. And that's why in this section, our chapter title or our section title is Follow Him. In this section of chapters 8 to 10, we're going to find various miracles, uh, various short segments of teaching, and they're all focused 
on helping us understand what true discipleship is all about. For instance, chapters 8 through 9, there are 10 miracles. And Matthew orders them differently than any other gospel writer. He does so because he's not just giving you a history of Jesus' miracles. He's telling you what these miracles are in order to help you understand who Jesus is. And then in chapter 10, he's going to talk about the cost of what it means to follow him. He's going to identify that following him, while glorious and hopeful, is not always safe. In fact, listen to this text in Matthew 10:16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, that's a pretty familiar passage, but just think about that. What happens to sheep when they go in the midst of wolves? Not good things, right? They get eaten and torn up. And so when Jesus is using this analogy, he's talking about the fact that he's sending his disciples out into the midst of the world, and it is going to be a tough go. And then he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So two weeks ago, we began this uh, section of what it means to follow Jesus by looking at three marginalized people. We looked at a leper, a centurion, and a woman. And it was the intent of that particular section to help us see that Jesus reaches out to the marginalized people in his culture. And our text this morning takes that another step further. He introduces not only how, Matthew introduces not only how Jesus reaches out to the marginalized people, but now he's explaining to us what the disciples, those who claim to follow him, are really all about. Essentially, if you could boil down this little section into one word, it would be the word discipleship. So that then raises an interesting question. What exactly is discipleship? What is it? Does it mean that you just are growing spiritually? Is it just a a book you read about knowing more about Jesus? What, What is discipleship really? What does it mean to follow him? Who is a true follower of Jesus? Why, or whether, what do disciples, what do real disciples look like? And, and what is real discipleship involved? What does it cost? Now the reason why this is important, this issue of discipleship, is because Jesus has now become popular. If you look at chapter 8 and verse 1, you'll see that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And verse 18 says, now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So Jesus' ministry is popular. He has lots of followers. And so that then raises the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And here's the thing you just have to understand, that just because somebody claims to be a follower of Jesus... Just because they're hanging around Jesus doesn't mean that they're a genuine follower of his. And it's really important for us to understand and get this. One of the reasons that Matthew is so strong in some of the the miracles and some of the actions of Jesus is because he is deeply concerned that you understand what real discipleship is like. Received an email that illustrates this this week. It says this, I have not been a regular church attendee for years and have never been baptized. A few months ago, I met one of your parishioners online. In our email correspondence, she told me that she went to College Park Church and how much she enjoyed it. I went to yourchurch.com, looked around, and I decided to listen to one of your sermons online, and it was the one on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, between the series and the How the Kill Relationship series. You know what one that is? It was, the title was this, Only a Few Are Truly Saved. You imagine this guy? Hey, he's scrolling down, he's like, uh, oh, I'll go with that one right there, right? You know what that means. He chose the firecracker one, all right? 
Here's what he writes. I was getting spiritually slapped in the face on a weekly basis. I had to take a hard look at my life, and I came to the realization that I was a Christian in name only. One of the burdens of my heart is that I feel like there are thousands, if not millions of people, maybe even hundreds within our own church, that that description fits them. I was Christian in name only. He says, I wasn't following Christ's example. Over the next few months, over the last few months, I have truly accepted Christ as my Savior and have sought a relationship with Him. I'm a work in progress, but at least the work has started now. I believe that God had me start listening when I did so I could hear the specific message that you were teaching. Thank you for not pulling punches or watering down the truth. The reason why that's important is because there are many people who claim to be Christians. Many people who claim to be followers of Jesus. Many people who say things like, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And to those people, Jesus says, You don't know what you're talking about. Matthew's aim is to help us see what real discipleship looks like. What it means to really be a follower of Jesus. And in order to help us see that, he gives us three different pictures. The first is of a hasty scholar. The second one is of a reluctant recruit. And the third is a group of fearful followers. And each of these little pictures have some really important lessons when it comes to discipleship. And I want to help us understand them and unpack them because I want you to be a real disciple of Jesus, not someone who's Christian in name only. The first example is that of the hasty scholar. And the lesson here, I'll give it to you right up front, is this, that talk is cheap. Talk is cheap, meaning not everybody who says, I'm a follower of Jesus, really is. Not everybody who says, I'm a Christian, truly is. And we'll see what the problem here is with this man. Verse 18 tells us that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee, and when they arrived on shore, he was greeted by a scribe. Now, who's a scribe? A scribe is a professional student of the law. They came on the scenes, interestingly enough, because the priests, who used to be students of the law, became corrupted by their wealth and by the politics connected with their position. And so it was the scribes who became known for protecting, guarding, and explaining the law. They were often connected to the Pharisees, and they served as the teachers of the people, and they were usually called rabbi. Now, understand that in the early days before Jesus came onto the scene, the scribes and the Pharisees were seen as, as really helpful, trying to bring people back to what the law said. In fact, if you were a mom and dad and your daughter um, was being betrothed to a scribe or a Pharisee, you would be grateful because this was a young man who, or an older man who was desiring to do what was right in the cultural sense. So the scribes made a profession of explaining what the law really said, and they were highly regarded by the people. 
In verse 19, the scribe meets Jesus and he makes a remarkable statement. Look at what he says. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at first, it seems like a genuine statement. It seems like something that Jesus would embrace and say, okay, come on, join us. But Jesus' response is rather direct. He says in verse 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So apparently, Jesus by his response, indicates that he's not impressed by this man showing up and saying, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Why? Why? What is the problem here? The problem is that the focus of his statement is not Jesus, and it's not following. The focus of Jesus, the focus of the statement is himself. He says, Teacher, not Lord. And what's interesting in the book of Matthew is whenever someone approaches Jesus and they call him Teacher, it's not a person who is one of his disciples. For instance, in Matthew 12, 38, 19, verse 16, and 22, verse 16, those who come to Jesus and call him teacher are usually looking to be entrapped, or to, to entrap him, not to submit to him. The second thing that's interesting here is that the emphasis in his language is on himself. He says, I will follow you. And then he makes a bold and overstated commitment. I will follow you wherever you go. And what happens here is that it appears that this man thinks that he is quite a catch. He thinks that Jesus will be thrilled that he has signed up to be with his band of brothers. He arrogantly approaches Jesus. He doesn't ask if he can follow him. He doesn't request to be part of his inner circle, but rather he tells Jesus, he announces, I will join you. We don't know all what's going on here. By conjecture, we might think that Maybe he was attracted to Jesus' teaching or his works. Maybe maybe he looked at the disciples that Jesus had and was like, fisherman, fisherman, tax collector. Mm, there's no brains in this group. I know, I'll sign up and I'll be the resident scholar of the disciples. I will follow you wherever you go. It's almost as though he anticipates Jesus to say, oh good, come join us. We could use some brains in this bunch. <laughs> maybe he was thinking that Jesus would somehow be thrilled Regardless, the man's motives are clear to Jesus, and Jesus is not impressed, which is why he makes kind of a quirky statement. He says, foxes have holes, verse 20, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, there are times, honestly, when Jesus says things in the Gospels, and I read them, and I just go, what? <laughs> what? what, what, what foxes have holes and birds? What? What, what? what are you saying? Here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying that this man's statement is shallow and he's showing him that by addressing the true cost of following him. He's saying foxes have homes, birds have homes, but the Son of Man doesn't have a home. And the reason he says this is because in Jesus' day for a student to become a part of a rabbi's circle meant that he would live with him and travel with him and go with him. And it meant security, it meant fame, it, it meant that you were part of the inner team of this kind of traveling entourage with this rabbi. So you always have this teacher and all of his little disciples behind him. And what Jesus is saying to him is, I'm a rabbi the likes of which you have never seen. I'm the kind of teacher whose teaching and life, you don't know how costly it will really be. 
So Jesus is not ready to sign up every person who says, I will follow you and go wherever you go. Because he knows that not everyone who makes these claims verbally will really follow through in their life. That there are people who come to Jesus with passion, but they fizzle out. They're sparklers. You use sparklers on the 4th of July? You know, in Indiana, you can have all sorts of violent fireworks here. In Michigan, like, the most violent thing we could use was sparklers and not get arrested. You know, so... So, we have this candle that we set up, right? And our kids would come up and they'd light their, their little sparkler. And, and then it would light up. And then they, they'd run around the yard. And, and, and invariably they come back and they're like, it burned out. And it, they got like a burn rating of about what? Maybe 30 or 40 seconds. And they run around the yard all happy till it, while it's sparkling. And they just, it fizzles out. And the reality is there's people who are like that when it comes to following Jesus. Oh, they, they come to church, they, they, they find an answer, and they, they put their little sparkler into the fire, and it starts shining brightly, and they're running around telling everybody they're a follower of Jesus, and about a year later, shh, they fizzle out. I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm done with that. They, they, they come to church because their marriage is in trouble, and, and so they want to fix, so they, they, they want to have, they've got new kids in the house, and suddenly now they feel guilty because they've not had any concern for spiritual things, and so they, they want their kids to be raised in the church, and the reality is what they are is they're a, a sparkler, a fizzle, so to speak. Not a real follower of Jesus. You see, one of the greatest illustrations of this is in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Take your Bibles and turn to that text, because it, it's a very helpful illustration. For those of you not familiar with the parable, Jesus is telling a story about four different kinds of soils. And he's using... Um, seed as an analogy for the gospel. And the idea is that there's a person who's going and spreading seed, and the gospel is falling on four different kinds of people or soils. There's the um, soil that's along the path, that the enemy comes and snatches it away. There's the soil that is among thorns, it grows up and it's choked. And then there's soil that's along the good ground, and that grows and it bears fruit. There's another soil, though, in verse 5. It's the rocky ground. It says this, Matthew thirteen five. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now, the great thing about this parable, it's one of the few parables that Jesus actually gives us his own commentary about what he is saying. And he explains it in verse 20. Look at it. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So get that. They hear the word and they're like, Yes! I found the answer! I, I, I now know what's wrong with my life and my marriage and all oh, the, the, the music and the word. And they, they're so excited. They are pumped up. They're like cheerleaders. They're like walking around church and go Bible, go Bible, yee, Jesus, yay, yay, yay. And they are just so juiced. But what they don't realize is they are using Jesus as their lackey. They want him to fix their problems. That's why they've come. 
And what happens is, he says, yet it has no root in himself, it endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So they receive it with joy, and they're all excited, and then they find out that following Jesus is costly, and they're like, oh, no, I didn't sign up for that. No, I just, I just came like to get fixed. Like, I just want to be happy and I don't, I don't want anything hard. I just want to, no, I'm going to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. That's bad. I want to go to heaven. That's good. So give me that. And what Jesus tells us here is that talk is cheap. In other words, anyone can claim to be a follower of Jesus. Anybody can be juiced about Change. Anybody can be really excited. Anybody can make bold statements. John Calvin says this on this text. We should learn not to make wild and irresponsible claims to be Christ's disciple without taking any thought for the cross and the hardships. I've often thought of writing a tract. You know those tracts that you hand out? Or used to hand out? Yeah. Um, that say, um, you know, your steps to a wonderful life. I've often thought of developing a tract that says, receive Jesus and your life will be really hard. <laughs> and how many people would be like, nah, no thanks. Because that, that is what Jesus tells us. Anyone can claim to be a follower of Jesus. And, and I've learned over the years to be not so convinced by convincing statements. I try not to be pessimistic, but I have found it to be true that people who are over the top in their spiritual statements, they're over the top in terms of their enthusiasm, there's way, way, way over the top, are usually covering up for spiritual shallowness and oftentimes running from something in the past. I've also found that visitors who are overly generous in their praise are usually the first to leave. They come in and they're like, this is the best church I've ever found. The music was like awesome. You're preaching, you're like better than John MacArthur. (laughs) Yeah, yes. I downloaded all of your sermons. I listened to them in my sleep. I can quote you. You're like Spurgeon. I know that about three years from now, they'll be like, nah, nah, you're not so good anymore. See ya. And they'll leave. I've also found that people who come and they're like, yeah, we're coming here because we're tired of our apostate church and the pastor over there, and they they go all these negative things about their former church. I know it's just going to be a matter of time until they're saying the exact same thing about me and us. So here's a little clue if you're new. (laughs) If you come up to me and you're like, my, no, I don't want to do that. You know, so just be careful, okay? Seriously, because... Um, I hang out with the other pastors in our community, and, and candidly, you're talking about my friends. And some of them are doing some really, really good work. And I'm not impressed by people who have, are lavish in their praise, because we, I've come to see that it's just a matter of time until I or our church becomes like the couch that's just old and familiar. I found that premarital counseling couples who say, we never fight, <laughs> lie, and are just, they're stupid. They just, they don't understand. I'm sorry, but they are, okay? Be- because you, you, when you get together 
in a marriage and you've got people who are sinful, there are going to be arguments. And, and when they say, I don't fight, then... Well, I've already said it. So, <laughs> I've also found with premarital counseling couples, I ask them a question, and it's this. Do you think you could ever commit adultery? And if they say, no, no way, then they get like five more sessions. <laughs> because I am convinced that one of the most dangerous things in the world is to be over-convinced about your ability to make it over the long haul. I'm not impressed with parents who talk about their parenting as if they've got it all together. Because most don't. You know who I want to talk with? I want to talk with the people who really know what it means to follow Jesus and say, you know what, we, we love Jesus and, and come into faith in Christ is the greatest thing in all the world, but there are times it was hard and I failed and, and it's only by God's grace that I'm even here. Those are the kind of people who get what it means to follow Jesus. Talk is cheap. You can say anything you want. Overstatements don't impress. I remember when I learned this lesson the hard way. In, uh, between my freshman and sophomore year in college, I was on a basketball evangelism team in the Philippines. And it was a wonderful, eye-opening experience, but it was physically absolutely horrendously difficult. It's like 95 degrees, you're playing basketball, I mentioned it before, there's no water, you have to drink orange Fanta, and it's just, and the worst thing is you're traveling in these tight little jeepneys, they're like buses, like the short buses, and there's like 15 guys, they're in shorts, and it's sweaty, your legs are touching each other, you're just like, get me out of here, it's just like so gross, and like by day two, I was like, I want to go home. I mean, it was just, it was so not comfortable. Well, we made it all the way through the um, the missions trip, which was about 35 days, we're in a hotel, getting ready to board the plane the next day from Manila to Seoul, Korea, Seoul, Korea, back to Chicago. We're laying in bed at night, and one of the guys says, Hey, uh, what would happen if um, you, know, you had to give your ticket up tomorrow? And I was laying in my bed, and I'd be like, I'd give it up, no problem. And the guy's like, you broke up, you would not. I said, I would. I'd give my, t- I'd give my ticket to you, no problem. He's like, no, you wouldn't. I was like, yes, I would. I would give my ticket to you. I'm like, all right, whatever, I don't believe you. I'm like, all right, fine. So we fly from Manila, land in Seoul, Korea. We get on this big plane in Seoul, and I walk over to my seat, and I look at my ticket stub, and there's someone sitting in my seat, and it's this mom and her child. And I said, oh, and then I realized my seat's double booked. So I went to the stewardess, and she said, sir, the plane's getting ready to leave. Would you please find your seat? And I'm like, I, 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 someone's in my seat. I, I can't sit there. About then, one of the guys in my team saw me. They're like, hey, dude, where's your seat? I said, it's, uh, right. I said, looks like you're staying in Seoul, Korea, big talker, right? And about that time, I'm thinking, why did I say that last night? Why did I say that? Because really, talk is cheap. I'm starting to panic that I'm going to be left in Seoul, Korea. I'm going to hang on the end of the plane or something. I'm not staying. I am going. So it all, it all worked out, by the way. Um, as Providence would have it, I didn't have a seat down there. No, I got moved to executive first class. That's, that's living. I was sitting next to the vice president of Eastern Asia for Caterpillar. I'm up there eating filet mignon, and it was good. I came back downstairs, and my friends are like, how's your food up there, Mark? So, But what I learned in that lesson was talk is cheap. You can say anything you want, but at the end of the day, it's not just what you say. But the question is, will you really be real? So listen to me, the measurement of a disciple is not what you say. It's not what you project. 
It's not your level of excitement. Come on, emotions are fickle. Excitement fades. Affections, they rise and fall. The real test of discipleship is not what you say. Rather, it's this. Do you know who Jesus is and will you follow him when life gets tough? That's what it means to be a disciple. Do you know who he is? Do do you know the reality of what it means for Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life? Do you know what it means to rejoice with the fact that my chains are gone, I've been set free, and come what may, I will continue to serve him? Can you, do you resonate with the statement of Polycarp who was demanded, early church father, that he repent of his crime of professing Christ as Lord and he said this, how could I repent and turn from him who all these years has been so faithful to me? You see, this hasty scholar thought that Jesus was just another rabbi When the reality is that following Jesus requires sacrifice and risk and difficulty. But the thing is, if you really know him, you will know that following him is worth it. Talk is cheap. Secondly, from the reluctant follower, don't look back. Verse 21, we see the second person. Notice he's described here as a disciple. Which means he's already spent some time with Jesus. We don't know exactly how long he's been with Jesus. But he says to Jesus in verse 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Question, what is he asking Jesus to let him do? It seems like a reasonable request at first, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like the right priority if his dad has died that he should go and bury his father. But the problem is that little phrase, go and bury my father, is not how you and I would think about it in 21st century America. No, what this phrase means in Jesus' day was that he wanted to return home and return back to his family so that he could fulfill the responsibilities as a son until his father died. So the disciple is not asking if he can go back and bury his father. Rather, he's saying he wants to go and return home for an indefinite period of time. So the problem here is not his father's death. His father likely hasn't even died. The problem is a priority problem, which is why it's instructive to see the word first in the statement. He says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So apparently he had become a follower of Jesus But at some point, he began regretting his decision. And as a result of that, as a result of the costliness of the decision, this disciple wanted to go back home. Now, if you think about this, there should be a tension in your mind. Because caring for family and being a family man is elevated and highlighted and and listed as important in the Scriptures. But the problem here is not family. The problem is priority. And that's why Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He calls for an allegiance. Don't miss this. He calls for an allegiance that takes greater priority than even marriage and family. In Matthew 10, 37, Jesus will say it this way. He says, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And what Jesus is saying here is that more basic to even earthly relationships, even as highly valued as they are in life, that of marriage and that of family, that his relationship with these disciples is more 
basic, more foundational than that. Which is why he says, leave the dead to bury their dead. It's a remarkable statement. Because what Jesus is saying here is he's calling the alive family members dead people. He's saying in metaphoric language that what the disciple has left behind is a group of people who are dead. And he is contrasting here between what he has found, life in Christ, and what he's considering going back to, which was death. And that that distinction between life and death is something that the Bible uses over and over to describe the difference between the past of your former life and the present life with Jesus. Listen to 1 John 5.11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So what Jesus is doing is setting up a contrast here. He's saying the people who you want to go back to are dead. He's calling the reluctant disciple to shore up his commitment in following him, and he's offering him a more basic relationship in life, and that is a relationship with his Lord. And so what Jesus wants him to see is that there is a story behind what he sees in life. That family isn't bad, but part of the cost of following Jesus means that someone more basic and more important than even father or mother or husband or wife or children has taken over your life. And I can't tell you how many times I have seen when this gets out of priority, bad things happen. There are people who come to church because they they want to hear answers of how they can fix their marriage. They, They want to know how they can raise good kids. And they want to know how they can be kind of a model family. And the reality is what Jesus is saying here is that, look, I have a greater priority than even the very best and good things in life. That Jesus' aim for your life is not for you to be like the Cleaver family or the Huxtable family. Or whatever family you want to put in there in terms of what you think the model family is. His goal for you is to be a Christ worshiper that uses family and children as the means to exalt Him. Not the means of Jesus to fix what's broken in your relationships. It's a subtle move, but it's a really important priority shift. Because there's some people that literally use the gospel or use the Bible as a self-centered means to get what they want, the family, the home, the marriage that they've always dreamed of. And if Jesus can't give them that, they're out of here. And there are some times when he allows wayward children and he allows long-term marital conflict because his goal is to frame you into Christ's likeness. That's the aim of your life, not the perfect family. So Jesus calls him to not look back. I was thinking of this verse this morning that says that when Jesus said, any man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. And I did a quick search. It's in Luke 9, verse 62. And guess what? That's the verse that Luke throws in right after this story. So no man putting his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Now there are two really important applications that I, I need to draw out. From here, The first is this, is that some of you, when it comes to family, meaning your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, extended relatives, and maybe some of you, even your spouse, you know exactly what it means when Jesus says, leave the dead to bury the dead, because you're married to a spiritually dead person. 
Or this Thanksgiving, you're going to spend it with spiritually dead people. And you're going to hang around with a bunch of people who look at you and they're like, what in the world are you wasting your time with that religion? Or maybe you have a spouse that you come home this afternoon over lunch. You're going to hear, why did you go to church today? And you know that every holiday, every family activity, every gathering, when your family is in, you feel like an alien. You you feel so alone, you feel silly, and you look around, and every once in a while you have this thought, what if they're right and I'm wrong? And, And you begin to think, this is hard, and it's awkward, and it doesn't feel right. This is supposed to be my family, and there's times when you don't even... You, 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 you clam up, you don't want to talk about what's going on in your soul, and there's this great sorrow in your heart because of that. And, and here's my hope to you from the Scriptures. Jesus, in Matthew 13, he says this, Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And then Jesus says this, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, listen to me carefully. Those of you who have families like this, the pain of your family difficulties is a real cross that Jesus calls you to bear, and he calls you to bear that cross and not look back. For some of you, the next two months are going to be some of the most challenging seasons in your spiritual walk because God is asking you to be a light in the midst of the most intimate relationships that you have. Don't look back. The second application is this, is that there are some who might be tempted to wonder what your life would be like if you went back to the former you. You know what I'm talking about? You start to think about, I wonder what life would be like if I wasn't like sold out to Jesus. You hear perhaps about what your co-workers did on the weekend, and it brings back memories. You see your neighbor getting his newspaper at 10 o'clock on Sunday in his I give up clothes, and you think, God, that'd be kind of nice to do that. You connect with old friends, you go to a reunion, you, you find them on Facebook, and you figure out that they're godless, they're making lots of money, and they seem so happy. And for a fleeting moment, you entertain the thought. I wonder what it would be like if I was in... And what Jesus is saying here is, don't look back. Some relationship comes your way. That's out of the boundaries of God's will for your life, married or single. And you begin to think, I know I believe in Jesus, but I wonder what that would... Don't look back. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you see the world through this lens. You've come to see Jesus and you see the world differently. And because of that, you do not look back. Looking back means you're not fit for the kingdom. Jesus says, in effect, look to me and live. Find what it means to discover life and then live in that. It is to agree with the hymn writer, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And finally, we have the fearful followers. The story that we have next is designed to highlight the importance of how disciples are to learn to trust. Verse 23 indicates that Jesus gets into a boat and his disciples join him. And while they're on the Sea of Galilee, a great storm comes and the boat was being swamped with water. 
And throughout this entire harrowing experience, Jesus is asleep. It's really a funny scene. The storm, I mean, this is a big storm. The boat's reeling, the waves are crashing, the disciples are trying to get the water out of the boat. And meanwhile, Jesus is over on the bottom of the boat, and he's sound asleep. I mean, come on, that would tick you off, wouldn't it? I mean, at a minimum, he should be up here helping us bail out this boat. No, he's there taking a nap. And his disciples begin to panic. And in verse 25, they say, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. In the original language, it's three words in staccato form. It could sound like this. It's like SOFs. Save, Lord, dying. That's what it is. Three words. Save, Lord, dying. And they, they, they tell him, Save, Lord, we're dying. Jesus wakes up. And in verse 26, he says, Why are you afraid? You know, I, I would have flunked out as a disciple, I'm telling you. Because I would have said, look around. That's why I'm, why are you afraid? Hello, look it, look it. And you're like sleeping, you know. Look, look at what's going on here. Jesus rebukes them, says, oh, you of little faith. He actually calls them little faith ones. What had happened? Well, fear had gotten the best of them. And they were starting to panic. And the result was they stopped trusting. So, somewhere I want you to write this down. The presence of fear without faith creates panic. The presence of fear without faith. I'm not saying it's wrong to be afraid. But I am saying that when fear moves into panic, it's because you violated the faith concept. Jesus is chiding them for excessive fear that is triumphing over their faith. And it's causing them to panic. Here's what you do when you panic. You do one of two things when you're panicking. You get anxious, you worry, you think, you try and do something, or you get angry. And both are attempts on your part to grab a hold of control instead of trusting. Jesus rebukes two things. He rebukes the disciples' fear, and he rebukes the storm. And imagine what that moment must have been like. The boat is rocking back and forth, the waves, the sea, the winds are howling, and Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and the sea, and instantly it's over. Everything is calm. Verse 27 captures the moment. And they marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? That's a great question, and here's the problem. They don't really know who Jesus is yet. You see, the reason why they are freaking out, the reason why they're saying, save, Lord, dying, is because they don't know that the Son of God, who's sleeping, can stand up and go, be quiet, winds, and everything's quiet. The disciples didn't fully understand that knowing Jesus means trusting Him. That's what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. It means that you, you know Jesus and you trust Him, and that's... That's, that's basic Christianity. For those of you who are still trying to figure out Christianity or, or what do you do with your guilt that's in your heart or how do you have a right relationship with your Creator, it boils down to this. You have to trust Christ's death as your own. So a relationship with Jesus, Christianity begins by placing your trust in Him and then it's a lifetime of continual trust. It's not that you just trust Him once and then you're like, okay, now I got this the rest of my life. No, it's that you trusted Him for the forgiveness of your sins and the rest of your life is a ongoing understanding and growth in what it means to trust Him more. Now, I find it very interesting that in the midst of this storm, Jesus is sleeping while His disciples are panicking. I love that. 
I mean, he could have been sitting up and watching, but no, he's asleep. One commentary said this about this issue. One can learn from the story that in danger, disciples should sometimes walk into their room, lie down, and go to sleep. At times, listen to this, sleep with confidence pleases Jesus more than prayer with fear. I love that. You know why? Because I hate to sleep. I've often said to my wife, sleep is a waste of time. Think of all the hours that you're spent just doing nothing, laying in your bed, eyes closed, zero activity. If I could choose, I would choose not to sleep. I can't do that because I'm an ogre. I sin. I get tired. I don't think clearly. The reality is I need to sleep because humanity, by definition, is not unlimited. I have limitations. I can't go 24 hours. In fact, someone asked me, have you ever pulled an all-nighter? I never have ever pulled an all-nighter. Not ever, not once. Because I can't do it. I pass out. I get sick. I can't. I, it doesn't work for me. And sleep is a reminder that I am human. There are limitations. I've learned... That sleep is worship. Some of you are like, sweet! Oh, yes! Amen! You received it with joy! You're like, woo! Yes! But I'm not kidding. There are times when I go to bed with so many things unresolved. No solutions at a problem at church, a sermon barely started. A marital conflict not fully resolved, a burden on my heart that won't go away. And sometimes the most worshipful thing I've done all day is to lay my head on the pillow at night and say, Jesus, I'm going to go to bed tonight believing that you are going to help me tomorrow. I trust you. There have been other moments when I've stayed up late, tried to discover a solution, find a way to work harder, journal, outline, diagram it. And the real issue in play at this moment is my unwillingness just to say, I trust you. So I'm not out at sea. There are no waves and wind, but make no mistake about it. Like the disciples, I'm saying, save, Lord, bad sermon. <laughs> I'm saying, save, Lord, church people. Save, Lord, imperfect marriage. Oh, here's one. Save, Lord, teenagers! <laughs> I'm sure that the Lord is pleased with my weak prayers, but I wonder if sometimes simple trust is really what He's looking for. There are times when I just need to be reminded that the same Jesus who was in that boat is the same Jesus behind this text. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over many waters. The Lord sits enthroned above the flood. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. You see, there are many, many times when I just need to be reminded that central, central, central to being a disciple is learning to trust in Jesus. And even though the boat is rocking and the storm is fierce, I can still trust that He is in control and worthy of my trust. And the same Savior who stood in that boat and said, Peace be still, is the same Savior who comes and gives peace in my own soul. He's worthy to be trusted. So listen, not everybody who claims to be a disciple of Jesus really is. There are some of you here, you're so full of passion. You're so full of happiness because you think you've found it. And the reality is, you are going to fizzle out. 
Because all that you're excited about is you have the answer to the problem you were looking for. And the real issue is that you're trying to use Jesus to change your life instead of having Jesus completely transform who you are. There are some of us who get our hands on the plow and before we know it, we start to look back. And Jesus is saying essentially here, look, talk is cheap. Don't be hasty. Don't look back. Don't be reluctant. And let us learn to trust. Let us not be filled with eclipsing fear. And my prayer is, is that from our church there would be full-throttle followers of Jesus who could agree with what we've just sung. Oh, no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. You never let go. Lord, you never let go of me. And therefore, I will not let go of you. So, Lord, thank you that our trying and our trusting is not dependent upon us alone But it is only because of you that undergirding our faith and our trust is a sovereign ballast of help. That we are to keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. So Lord, I pray today that you would open the eyes of some folks who have great talk and great words and know all the things they need to say, but the reality is they are fake. And I pray the day would be a day of reckoning, a day of realizing that they need to really come to Christ. I pray for other brothers and sisters, Lord, who are tempted to look back, perhaps tempted by old sins, old memories running from the past. And I pray that they would not look back, but realize that's where dead people live. You've found life. Lord, I pray for others today who just simply need to return back to the reality of what it means to trust in you. And let us be like Peter when Jesus asked him, are you going to leave me? And Peter said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Oh, Lord, where else can we go? There's nowhere to go. And so help us to trust. Save, Lord. Lord, you fill in the blank. While we're just wrapping up our service here at the end, I want to remind you that we'll have some folks available to pray with you. You may be here today just with a huge burden in your heart. Whether you're in worship too or here in the main sanctuary, I would hope that today you wouldn't walk alone. Don't be alone in that boat anymore. Instead, to say, I need someone just to pray for me that I could be held up. Keep trusting the one who keeps me trusting. So, Father in heaven, through the exaltation of your Son, I pray that you would minister grace to our weak, need hearts. We have decided to follow Jesus, and we don't want to turn back. And so we pray you'd help us to really follow you full throttle. We pray this in Jesus' name.